passage today comes from Psalm 110. And I invite you now to turn your hearts and give your attention to the reading of God's word. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's go to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. We love you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We love you, God, for your mercy toward us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we love you for your unfailing love toward us. Lord, we praise you this day that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. We come asking today for your help. Lord, we come casting ourselves on your mercy and your grace. We come pleading with you, Lord, that you would fill us with everything good, everything that is needful for our souls. Lord, we pray that today Christ would be preached, that he would be confessed and believed on in the hearts of men. Lord, that Jesus Christ would be esteemed, the one who for our sake died and was raised. God, we pray that the glories of his name would be what is of first importance to us. Help us, God. Lord, you have exalted above all things your name and your word, and we ask that as we open up your word today, that you would prepare our hearts to, to hear it and to receive it, Lord, that the truth of your word would be lifted up and exalted in our hearts. Give us more of Christ as your word is proclaimed. Let us hear a word from heaven this day. Cause our hearts and our minds to be taken up with your glory and your worth. Do your work in your people. Draw those that don't know you to yourself. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been looking in our regular Lord's Day uh, series of studies in the book of Luke at the inauguration of Christ's kingdom in his condescension and humiliation, the early days of his ministry when his kingdom was just beginning to be established on the earth. Now, it wasn't established in the ways you might ordinarily imagine a kingdom to be established. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. They would have sought to obstruct uh, the, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But Jesus said, my kingdom is not from this world. And yet it was nevertheless a kingdom. It was one that took hold of enemy terrain. It's one that conquered tyrannical powers. It's one that established a throne on which a new sovereign was acknowledged and submitted to, and in fact adored by its citizens. How is this achieved? By what means was and is Christ's kingdom established? Well, it is established in the hearts of men 
as the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is proclaimed throughout the earth. Christ's cross work on behalf of men, which carries with it this call to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn from your sin. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on him. His kingdom is at hand. Today we're looking not at Christ's condescension and humiliation, but his exaltation and his ascension at God's right hand, what we call his session. Uh, That word simply means that he is seated. It means Christ is seated in the place of highest power and authority in all of the universe. And we're using Psalm 110 to uh, consider that. This is a prophetic psalm. It's a royal psalm. It's one of the most majestic and exultant psalms in all of the Psalter. It's also the most frequently cited Old Testament text in all of the New Testament. That gives you a sense of his importance. It gives gives you a sense of its significance to our understanding of Christ's present rule and reign. Uh, King David is speaking here under inspiration of the Holy Spirit about something that was about a thousand years away from the time when he was writing. It's a divine decree spoken from the first member of the Godhead to the second member of the Godhead. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now remember that God has already promised David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that when his days were fulfilled and he lied down with his fathers, that the Lord would raise up David's offspring after him who would come from his own body and the Lord would establish his throne forever. Now in that context, when those words were spoken, uh, they were uh, referring most immediately to King Solomon, someone who the Lord himself said would commit iniquity, who the Lord would have to chastise, would need to discipline uh, with the rod of men, and yet at the same time he said he would never remove his steadfast love from him. Well, now we come to Psalm 110, where David receives this revelation from the Spirit that his descendant, David's descendant, who is also David's Lord, will sit at the Father's right hand in this position of supreme authority and power and glory, one that that clearly assigns deity to the one of whom it is speaking. So the one being spoken of in Psalm 110 clearly outshines David or Solomon or any mere man, for that matter. Most English translations make this actually unnecessarily confusing by using the word Lord in small caps, and its first occurrence there. There are actually two different words for Lord here in verse 1. The first is Yahweh. It is the Lord's personal covenant name. The second is Adonai, which means master or Lord, which could refer to the Lord God. It could refer even to an earthly master. One is a name, Yahweh. One is a title, But Yahweh is speaking to David's son, whom David clearly understands himself to be subservient to. The Lord said to my Lord. So David's son is David's Lord, which of course prompts the question, if David is the king of Israel, If David is at the the top of the nation of God's chosen people, how can his son be his superior? And this whole conundrum is something that Jesus plays really wonderfully off of in Matthew chapter 22. 
where he is talking to the Pharisees, and he asks them a question. It's a leading question, uh, but he says, who do you think, or, or what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Whose son will the Messiah be? And they say to him, the son of David. That much they know. They, they understand that. They, they get that right. And then Jesus says this. He says, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? That's Jesus' question. And Jesus doesn't fill in the blanks there for him. He doesn't give them the answers. He just leaves them to wrestle with its implications. And that's what I want to do with you today, to wrestle with the implications and the truths of the word spoken in this text and, uh, frankly, to, to glory in the one of whom this text is speaking. Now, first, uh, we see the session of this future king anticipated by David that this is something that the New Testament writers always associate with the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. If you want to turn to Acts chapter 2, you are welcome to join me. Uh, Peter, in his Pentecost Day sermon, speaks of this, and he makes a connection to our text today there. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 29. Peter says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It was the working of of God's great might when he wor- that he worked in Christ when he raised him up from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the, fa- in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, that fulfilled Psalm 110 and verse 1. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that it was after making purification for sins, that he, Jesus Christ, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ went to the cross. He made a full atonement for sins for everyone that would believe on him. He drank the cup of the Father's wrath all the way down to the dregs. He poured out his blood for many for the forgiveness of sins. And when it was finished, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. It's no wonder that the New Testament writer so frequently quote these words, he sat down because of the way that they echo really Christ's own words spoken from the cross. It is finished. The way they signal the completion of God's redemptive work in the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so beloved, today Christ sits 
He is seated until, until his enemies are made his footstool. He sits until his enemies are fully and finally vanquished. He reigns in triumphant victory, waiting for all things to be brought into subjection to him. Now, how is this going to be finished, finished? How is this going to be accomplished? We're going to see two major ways as we walk through this text today. But first of all, I want you to notice that God the Father says to God the Son, sit at my right hand until two words, I make, I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord has promised Christ's enemies will be trampled under his feet. He gave his word beginning in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 that the head of the serpent would be bruised. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and, your, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I make. God is behind all of this. God is ordering the course of human history according to his purposes. What are those purposes? One of them you see right here. He is routing out all of his enemies, to put under the feet of Christ those that stand against him is God the Father's purpose. Under the feet is an image of absolute, uh, total conquest. In Joshua chapter 10, there is a coalition of kings that stand against Joshua and the people of God. If you remember the scene there, Joshua eventually finds them uh, these these uh, enemy kings, and they are hiding in a cave. And he drags them out, and while he holds on to them, he summons Israel's chief men, chiefs of the men of war, and he says this. He says, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Well, so it is with Christ. The psalm opens with this anticipation of a Davidic, messianic king who will triumph. He will triumph over all of his enemies. The head of the serpent has been bruised at the cross. Christ is seated in victory, but he's also seated until the Father makes all his enemies his footstool. We could say it this way. Something decisive has happened. Great, indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. But the outworking of that, the outworking of his resurrection, ascension, and presence session at the right hand of the Father are still taking effect. Hebrews chapter 2 puts it this way. It says, God put everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. You see how God absolutizes what has happened in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But then he goes on and he says something more, and this is important. It's especially important when it comes to our vantage point in human history. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. You see how he anticipates the objection there. The objection goes like this, if Jesus is reigning, if Jesus is reigning in this position of supreme authority, supreme power and dominion, as the scriptures insist that he is, seated at the right hand of the Father, everything in subjection to him, why is it that so much of our, our life in the world seems to argue against that? 
Why is it that so much of our life seems to argue against that assertion? If Christ is on the throne, why does it feel like things are out of control? Why does it seem like from the human perspective that evil runs unchecked in the world? If you look back at your uh, Bible in in our text, verse 2 helps us here. It says that Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. So here Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Yahweh sends forth from Zion his mighty scepter. A scepter is a symbol of power and authority and rule. So he's saying the extent of Christ's reign continues to go forth. Again, in fact, you, you see here how it is the Lord who is giving Christ the kingdom. He's the one extending the scepter of his hand. It's the same thing you find in Daniel chapter 7 in verse 13. One like a son of man, he comes. He comes to the ancient of days, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should, should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom, which shall not pass away, everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. God the Father says to God the Son, rule in the midst of your enemies. He gives Christ that charge. He gives him the same charge originally given to Adam in the garden to subdue the earth except now we're looking at ruling over a fallen world. We're looking at bringing into subjection peoples who have rejected the authority and power of God. Now, I said there were two major ways that we see God bring into subjection all things. How is this scepter extended? How does the exercise of his rule continue to be expanded? First, let me call your attention to verse 3. This is really a wonderful, beautiful verse. It says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. So first, Christ's people offer themselves freely to the king. They are not involuntarily drafted. They are not marshaled into service. They're not forced into subjugation or enlisted as soldiers under some kind of tyrannical rule. They're not mercenaries. Uh, they're not people that, that just come and take a paycheck without any concern for who the king is or what the nature of the cause is. As long as they get paid, that's all, they matter. all that matters. No, they give themselves freely to the king on the day of his power. Now, why do they know that? Or why do they do that, beloved? Because they know the king. Because they know who the king is. They know his character, his goodness, his glory, his grace. They've heard what life in his kingdom is like. The liberty it brings, the joy, the hope, the peace that one knows living under his rule and his reign. The kingdom of God, the Apostle Paul says, is righteousness and peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what life lived under the kingship of the Messiah is like. And so his people volunteer themselves. Literally, it says your people will be free will offerings. In the Old Testament, there were certain offerings and sacrifices that you were required to give. And then there were free will offerings, sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving, things that were born out of just a heart of gratitude and love. And that's, that's the idea here. Messiah's people will come and believe and obey, not just because they hold papers 
in his land, not because their wills have been crushed into serving him, but because of his glorious power. Power that raises the dead to life. Power that delivers us from the domain of darkness and transfers us into the kingdom of God's beloved son. They offer themselves freely in the day of his power. And so you see the picture here, brothers and sisters. Christ doesn't just have the obedience of his people. He has that, but he has their hearts too. He has their hearts as well. There's enthusiasm and joy and delight as we willingly, uh, freely present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. We give ourselves freely to the King. Uh, Dear ones, I ask you, have you offered yourself freely to God? Have you seen his power and come and said, God, I belong to you. I abandon all of those other gods and kings, false rulers to whom I bowed before, and I offer myself freely to you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Have you submitted yourself to his loving rule? You see God's grace here. We're going to get to the annihilation of God's enemies in just a little bit. Before, but before we get there, there's this opportunity to come, come under the banner of his love, his benevolent rule, his sovereign grace. And so Christ rules. And he rules in part by welcoming friends into his kingdom, welcoming those who were formerly accounted as enemies. Many of you have already experienced this. You have bowed your heart in submission to his lordship. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You have confessed with your mouth Jesus is Lord. You believed in your heart God raised him from the dead and he has saved you. He's delivered you. The power of the gospel has triumphed in your life and you're not who you used to be. You walk in light. You walk in life. You live for his glory. Your delight is to do his will. That's evidence of his scepter being extended over your life. That's evidence of his lordship. You see the same idea uh, continue as we go on in verse 3. How do the people of God appear before him? in holy garments. So there's purity in our raiment. We're arrayed in holy garments. The garb of Christ's people befits the glory of the one they've come to identify themselves with, the one that they represent, the one that they serve. You might think here of the special garments that priests would wear as they serve the Lord. We worship the Lord, the Bible says, in the splendor of holiness. Having forsaken the worship of of false gods, having been rescued from the tyranny and the idolatry of sin, we're clothed with the robes of righteousness, an alien righteousness, a righteousness not our own. It's one that has been given to us By the Lord. Christ went to the cross and became sin for us, though he knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Revelation 19 talks about the heavens being opened up and it says, Behold, a white horse 
and the one sitting on it called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. And then it says, in the armies of heaven, that's a picture of the saints, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him. Keep going with me in verse 3. It says, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. This is a difficult phrase in, in the Hebrew. The dew of your youth seems to suggest possibly one of two things. It could be pointing to the king's young subjects. So it may be saying that in the same way that the early morning dew is immeasurable, there are innumerable youth in this metaphorical sense. There's a picture of strength in the Lord's army. Those following after him are many and they are full of vigor and life. Or your youth could be pointing back to the promised king himself as if to say that from the early dawn you will know unending might as you go forth in battle. Either way, you have a picture of limitless strength as the king moves forward. Now, we come to, to verse 4 and read something very interesting, something that must have made this particular psalm uh, especially memorable in the minds of God's people living before the time of Christ. It says, The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, there are a number of things that might catch our attention and uh, intrigue us about this particular uh, statement. God says something remarkable about this Davidic king that is to come, but notice just first of all the solemnity of the word. The Lord Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. Everything rests on the Lord's sworn oath. The very idea of swearing depends on the idea that you have something greater than yourself. If you go into the court of law and you, you appear before the magistrate, you're going to be asked to raise your right hand and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. But God doesn't have anything or anyone greater or higher than himself, by which to swear. The writer to the Hebrews draws this out in chapter 6. He says this, People swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. To put it in simple terms, God swore an oath for us. He swore an oath for our sake. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? And yet, for our sake, he swore by himself, indicating that he was obligating himself to fulfill his word. He was saying, that for the sake of our confidence, his honor and his reputation 
was on the line. That was at stake. In the same word that he cut a covenant with Abraham and that smoking fire pot and that flaming torch passed between the two pieces of the animal as if to say that if I break my word, let what happened to this animal happen to me. If I don't hold true to my word. He desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise. That's us. He wanted to to lodge in our hearts and minds the assuredness of his word. And so he swore an oath. He bound himself. And then to bolster it even further, he said, and I will not change my mind. I will not relent. Now, we have to deal briefly with the end of verse 4. We don't have time uh, to give it the attention that it really deserves. The Lord says there of this king, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, uh, the first thing I want you to notice there is that the one of whom David is, is writing is both priest and king. He is the seed of David, uh, but here it also says that he is a priest. Now, this presents a problem. This presented a problem according to Old Testament regulations because priests were required to come from the order of Aaron, from the line of Levi. You couldn't have a king who acted like a priest, although there were some that tried to do that. You might remember uh, King Uzziah tried to do that very thing uh, later in his life. He was otherwise a very godly man, but at, at, at some point he, he apparently began to lose a sense of his station, his proper station before the Lord. He began to, to lose a sense of humility. The Bible says that when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, and he decided that as king, he could just waltz into the temple and present his own sacrifices, and the priest uh, attempted to withstand him, but he pushed his way through, and as, as a consequence, was struck with leprosy to the very end of his life. There's no getting around uh, this requirement of an ironic priesthood Unless that priestly line came to an end, which is exactly what the New Testament says happened with the death of Jesus Christ. That Jesus made a full satisfaction for sin. He made the once for all sacrifice, establishing a new covenant in his blood and Hebrews says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Friends, we don't need another earthly, physical temple. We don't need the blood of bulls and goats, which cannot take away sin. We have the true and better sacrifice the true and better king, the true and better priest, the great high priest. How is Jesus able to be our priest when he doesn't come from the tribe of Aaron? How does this whole issue get resolved in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Well, you read it here in the text. He holds his priesthood by divine decree after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is an interesting fellow. Uh, We don't know a lot about him, and that's actually part of the point in the biblical text. Uh, We only hear about him in three places in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 14, here in Psalm 110, and then the book of Hebrews. In Genesis 14, we find that there are kings of four city-states, and they form this coalition under Ketelarmer. He is the king of Elam, and they are there uh, doing what uh, 
pagan kings do. They're raiding and they're pillaging and they are taking women and children and captives and plundering all along the way. And eventually they make their way to the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, the area where Abram's family is living in. So the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, along with three other kings, they try to defend their territory, but that raiding party wins, and they haul off a whole bunch of hostages. And among them is Abraham's nephew, Lot. Well, Abraham gets wind of this. He discovers what has happened, and immediately he takes off with three other kings, Uh, Genesis 14 describes this whole scene. Abraham takes trained men, 318 of them in all, and he goes after them, and he hunts them down. He finds them. He pursues them about 180 miles to the north, and he defeats them. He retrieves his uh, kinsmen, Lot. He recovers the goods. They start heading back home, and just when you would expect to, uh, to, to hear about a victory march or uh, this return of the captives, the story is kind of mysteriously interrupted. And out of the blue, as it were, this mysterious figure uh, named Melchizedek appears. I want to read just a couple of verses from Genesis 14, starting verse eight, 18. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Now, it is this short vignette that we are invited to meditate on as we think about the greatness of Christ in Psalm 110. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. And he's also the king of a place named Salem. If you think about the word shalom, related to the word peace, probably this is old Jerusalem. And so in this one figure, righteousness and peace kiss. Two qualities that you don't ordinarily expect to find embodied together in one person. And this is where the questions start flooding in, and I I hope they do for you. How can a man sit on a throne that is characterized by both justice and everlasting peace? Isn't that the question? How can righteousness and peace dwell together? This is the greatest question sinful men will ever face. Jesus Christ is the king of righteousness and he is the king of peace. Now, righteousness has to do with justice. It has to do with judgment. It has to do with uprightness and holiness. It calls for the punishment of evildoers. So how can sinful men like us How can we hope to know Jesus Christ, the King of Righteousness, also as the King of Peace? Romans 5 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Since we have been justified or made righteous by faith, not through our own works, but by faith, by trusting in Jesus Christ, we have peace 
with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So brothers and sisters, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he did not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne, and he is both king and priest after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 8 and verse 1 says, now the point in what we are saying is this. Don't you love uh, when the biblical authors say, here's the point, and you don't have to guess or, or, or wonder or, or dig or anything else. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He's saying, don't make any mistake about it. Jesus Christ is able to save to the uttermost those that draw near to God through him. He has no need to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the the sins of others. He did this once for all when he offered up himself. He offered up himself in our place. He is the great mediator. He is our priestly king through whom we find mercy for our sins. Are you a sinner? Are you in need of mercy today? Where will you find that? To whom will you go? Come to Christ. Come to him freely. Offer yourself to him freely on the day of his power. Today is the day of his power. Today is the day of salvation. Come, give yourself to him. Now we're not done yet. Still speaking prophetically to the Lord, the, the, the promised Messiah, King, in verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Now I want you to, to look at the language in verse 1 as compared with the language here in verse 5. In verse 1, the hope of all the earth sits exalted at Yahweh's right hand. Now here, the Lord himself, Yahweh, is at the right hand of his servant. This is directing our attention now away from those who serve the risen Savior to those that stand against him. And it says in no uncertain terms that the day of God's wrath is coming. This is the second means I spoke of by which the scepter of Jesus Christ will be extended. You might have come today to hear a uh, uplifting, heartwarming uh, message this Easter Sunday. But friends, let me just tell you this, that if you're apart from Christ... If you don't know him, this is the most important thing you can know. It is vital that you give your attention to what God's word says here. And it it is of the Lord's grace that you are here. It is of the Lord's grace that you sit where you do today. It is evidence of what the Bible calls the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, all of which are meant to lead you to repentance. The only alternative is to have a hard, impenitent heart, which means you're storing up wrath. You're storing up wrath for yourself. So you see, it's the inescapable conclusion of this passage. Christ is going to come again. He's going to come to judge the living and the dead. And when he does, it will be a day of absolute and total victory. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. In other words, as he goes forth, he will be refreshed. 
He will be victorious and he will receive the honor that he is due. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Beloved, what we are talking about today What we are looking at in this psalm is not some imaginary tale. This is what is really taking place presently in heaven and on earth. Christ's session has begun. He is ruling in the midst of his enemies. He is subduing some in glad, heartfelt, willing submission with others waiting to be vanquished on the day of judgment. Either way, he will rule. Let's pray together. Our great God, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his humiliation, his death, his burial. Lord, we thank you also for his resurrection and his ascension. We thank you, Lord, that today he is alive and he is seated at your right hand. We bless you, God, for the comfort and the peace that this brings to our hearts. Lord, the the encouragement uh, this brings to the heart of your people that no matter how Uh, difficult our days may be, no matter how challenging or deep our our valleys may be or how heavy our trials are, Lord, that the victory is secure, that we have nothing to fear. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. God, we pray as your people today for the lost. God, we pray that they would come to behold the beauty of the King and offer themselves freely to him, that they would repent of their sins and receive the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord, I pray also for your people. God, I pray that we would take heart, that our hearts would be encouraged in the victory that's been given to us that we would live for your glory all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.